are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello. My name is Lance Ralston. I'm one of the uh, board members for Enduring Word. David and Ingalil are on vacation, and so he asked me to fill in today. Uh, I've got a lot going on here, and this is the first time I've done this. Uh, I have a YouTube channel that I do, but everything's recorded and edited, and so doing something live is uh, kind of a new experience for me. I've done the Q&A once before, uh, looking forward to it this time as well. Uh, The first question that we have today is, that there's a passage in the fourth chapter of Genesis that seems, well, it seems kind of a silver bullet for skeptics and critics of the Bible and Christianity. And it's from there that a challenge rises, where did Cain get his wife? Now, verses 16 and 17 of of the uh, uh, chapter say this, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Uh, So far in the story of Genesis, only three humans exist, Adam and Eve, and then their son, Cain. His brother, Abel, had been murdered by Cain. Cain's punishment was banishment. And so the question comes from skeptics, where did Cain get his wife? Many regard the first 11 chapters of the Bible as its introduction, for the sake of moving the story along and getting to Abraham in chapter 12, where the really the real story of the Bible begins, the record in those 11 chapters is a bare-bones summary, with the exception of a, a later son named Seth, Adam and Eve's other children aren't named. And so it's uh, pretty certain that one of Adam and Eve's daughters went with Cain into banishment. And this provides fodder for critics to mock the Bible as ridiculous. They ask, where did Cain get his wife? Not really as a sincere question, but as a statement that's meant to show the author of Genesis wasn't very sophisticated to leave such an obvious flaw in his story. The contention is that the Bible's record can't be true because Adam and Eve, if they were the first and only parents, then Cain would have had to have married a sister, and that's incest. And besides, if Adam and Eve were the first and only progenitors of the human race, then the union of their descendants would have produced a race of severely physically disabled children. So how do we answer this seeming slam dunk challenge that's supposed to make the Bible nothing more than a piece of archaic fiction? Well, the answer is simple, really. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, we read that Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters, though only three of them are named— There were many more. Adam lived to be over 900 years old. He and Eve likely had dozens of children. By the way, we're going to come back to the long ages of the first humans a little bit later. Adam and Eve's children intermarried, as would have been necessary if the human race was to last more than just two generations. But it was neither morally wrong nor physically problematic yet for them to do that for a simple reason. Number one... God hadn't declared incest a sin, and it wouldn't be until the giving of the law during Israel's journey to the promised land. We find that prohibition in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, and then in the 22nd verse of Deuteronomy 27. Second, such close unions didn't present a physical problem 
because of the purity of the human gene pool at that time. Now think of this. In Adam and Eve was the genetic makeup for the entire human race. We were all literally in Adam and Eve. Our genetic material was there in them. That first man and woman possessed a staggering diversity in the potential of their genetic material. The, for the first of many generations of humanity, there were few flaws in the genetic makeup of humans. The curse brought on by sin saw a degradation of our genetic makeup that was progressive and cumulative. Mutations built up over time. But those first generations without, were, were without them, and the diversity of hereditary factors presented no danger to children produced by the, uh, produced by the union of close relatives. There simply was no danger in the union of a brother and a sister. And without it, the moral impulse against incest wasn't present in humans. Now, it would only be till much later, after the division of languages at Babel, when the population of Earth was split and isolated into regions that problems arose in the union then of close relatives. By then, the genetic material had sorted out and harmful mutations were more abundant. It's only when it became a danger for close relatives that uh, having children that God forbade it. Uh, now to the issue of the long ages of people in the early chapters of Genesis. There we read that some lived to well over 800 years of age. One man lived to be 969. And skeptics use this as evidence that Genesis is to be understood as myth. How do we answer that? Well, some suggest that we should understand the years of these chapters as simply a different unit of time, like maybe months. But that doesn't work because people would be having their first children when they're only five or six years old. Also, the same word that's translated as year in these early chapters of Genesis, well, it's used later and it clearly means a normal year of about 365 days. Far more likely is the purity of the genetic pool that we just talked about. That meant far greater health and much longer lives. And take note of the dramatic decrease in age that took place immediately after the flood. Earth conditions before and after the flood were significantly different. Most notably, that vapor canopy which surrounded the Earth and provided protection from harmful cosmic radiation, uh, that was removed. It collapsed to provide the rain for the flood. The vapor canopy would have dramatically increased at atmospheric pressure, which in turn would have done two helpful things. Number one, it would have retarded, it would have slowed the growth of viruses. And number two, well, it would allow plant life to proliferate as it moderated global temperatures. The world's present gas and oil deposits are evidence of a massive amount of organic material at some point in the past. All of which, by the way, must have experienced a rapid mass burial beyond the realm of decay, something the biblical uh, flood jives perfectly with. But with the collapse of that vapor canopy in the flood, protection from cosmic radiation was removed and atmospheric pressure dropped, allowing both mutations and viruses to proliferate. Lifespans dropped from many hundreds of years before the flood to just a hundred after it. So there's a, a potential answer for where Cain got his wife and why people live for such uh, long ages uh, after uh, in those early chapters of Genesis. All right, let me take a look at some of the questions that are coming in.
just, just reading these here. Oh, so Horatio asks, how did Paul differentiate an impediment from the Holy Spirit with one from Satan? For example, 1 Thessalonians 2.18 and Acts 16.6. 6. So let me look those up. 1 Thessalonians 2.8.2.18 says, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, as, and that's opposed to, let's compare that to Acts 16.6. Just trying to get my, my uh, software working here. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So, so how, how, does, how does Paul differentiate the, uh, between the, these two? Well, uh, this is a, an example, especially in the case of Acts here, where uh, Luke is recording, just giving a narrative of their trip. He doesn't give us uh, details here on how the Holy Spirit restrained Paul. Paul was very strategic. He saw an opportunity to go into a particular region, uh, but when he tried to go there, he was shut down. We don't know what the circumstances of that were. We don't know if that was officials were not allowing them to go, that they couldn't find transportation, that Paul became sick. Um, many uh, scholars and Bible teachers believe that uh, that was the way that God shut it down by Paul was just incapacitated and wasn't allowed to go. Or if it was just some sense that as they were praying about it, all of them that were part of the team, especially Paul had this sense of block. So it was something he wanted to do, but as he prayed, he just discerned the Spirit was, was shutting that down. That's possible. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit uh, made that, but it was very clear to them that it was the Holy Spirit that was saying no. In the other case, let's go back to that. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, Paul says, even I, speaking to the Thessalonians in his first letter, uh, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Uh, so, so this was clearly something that Paul recognized. There were uh, situations that were arising. He sensed that he was to go. Uh, that he was being sent by the Holy Spirit to do it. But the details for being able to get there uh, prohibited him from being able to go. And again, this is probably something that he just discerned in prayer, uh, that, that this was not something that the Holy Spirit was shutting down as he had when he wanted to go into Phrygia. But no, this was, this was the enemy actually stalling and stopping. It is curious, not long ago when I taught on this passage with our church, um, that, that Paul admits that, that Satan hindered uh, them. But here's what's interesting. When Satan hindered them, what did Paul do? He wrote a letter. So God wins in this because the letter that he wrote uh, ends up becoming a blessing to us. If Paul had gone to the Thessalonians... He wouldn't have written the letter, the letter he sent in his place. And so here we see that, uh, as Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good as we, we believe in the Lord, as we look to him, as we trust in him to work those things together. So not exactly sure how Paul discerned that, um, but this is the way that the Lord worked it around. Even when Satan tried his best and did indeed stall Paul being able to go to Thessalonica, 
um, God turned it and, and wrote a letter that we are all blessed by, as was the Thessalonian church. Okay, let's take a look at another question. Uh, Adonis asks this, was the Decalogue or any part of the Torah given on the first week, uh, on the first festival of the weeks? So, uh, yes, that that is uh, uh, the belief of many of the Jews, that the festival of weeks um, actually celebrates the commemoration of the giving of the, actually the Torah, the whole Torah. Now, the, of course, that's many books, and that it's five books. That took a long time for Moses to compose, um, but was the Decalogue specifically that we find there in Exodus chapter 20, was that given actually on that day of the feast so that it becomes, uh, you know, something that they commemorate? Uh, there is some Jewish tradition to that effect. It's one of those things that we don't really see spelled out in scripture, but it's very much a part of uh, classic traditional uh, uh, Jewish tradition. All right, let's see here. <laughs> this was good. this is good. Donald asks, when we say I'm glad God woke me up this morning, I'm doing good because I'm not six feet under. Um, is that bad in God's eyes? Because we would rather be in this world than to be with him in heaven. No, Donald, that, that's that's it's not a bad thing to say, hey, I'm, I'm happy to be alive that would make it then regretful to be alive because it would be better if we were with the Lord. Now, remember what Paul says in writing to the Philippians in his opening chapter there. He says um, that uh, he, he, would, he would prefer to go and to be with the Lord, but it was better for the Philippians that he stay. Um, this is at a point in Paul's life where he's coming to the end of his life, and so he sees that the, the time is short. Um, but no, Paul recognized that he, it wasn't up to him uh, to decide when he would go, that that was in the Lord's hands. And of course, he would prefer to go be with the Lord if you're in prison like that. But, but he said, no, but it's, it's more profitable that I remain. And so Paul was content to remain. Contentment is, a, of course, a big part of his letter to the Philippians. And so it's not wrong uh, to say, I'm, I'm happy to be alive. I, I would prefer to be in heaven right now. Listen, I would prefer to be in uh, Hawaii right now. I'm in Oxnard, California. It's gorgeous here, but you know what? Hawaii is better, and I would prefer to be in Hawaii. But it's needful for me to be where I am here in Ventura County because I have uh, family and friends, and I have a ministry, and I have things that I need to do, and I'm going to leave the timing of my departure from this earth to the Lord. So, no, it's not wrong to say, hey, I'm happy to be alive. I'd rather be with, in heaven with the Lord, but uh, th that's not the season that the Lord has called me to live in. He's called me to live in this moment, in this season, and so I will rejoice in it and try to live faithfully in the midst of it. Okay, now this is a really good question. Uh, Tunnelbannon23 says, I want to visit an amusement park on this Halloween and go into the ghost houses. Is that okay to do as a Christian or is it satanic to visit haunted houses? Tunnelbannon, listen, um, this, is, this is difficult to answer for this reason. Some of those listening are going to say, Christians should have nothing to do with Halloween. And there are going to be others that are saying, it's not a problem. And so any answer that I give is going to upset one group or the other. Um, 
this is where I think we need to look to the wisdom of Romans 14. So let me try to answer this question and deal with this issue because it's a very important one in the Christian life for us as individual Christians, but also for our fellowships, that we would understand that people have differences of opinion on what are called gray issues. Much of the Bible deals with black and whites, but not everything. We don't find prohibitions or exhortations to every possible form of behavior. But in Romans 14, Paul deals with the issue of those gray matters. In Romans 14, Paul is dealing um, with the, the challenge of Christians eating meat. I'm going to deal with that uh, so that we can get back to the specific question that you're answering or asking, excuse me, about Halloween. And, and is it proper for Christians to observe Halloween in any way or fashion? In the ancient world, generally, people would buy meat in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to an idol. Um, there were many idols, as you know, many gods and goddesses that people would go to, various temples and shrines in their cities. They would take a sacrifice to the altar. It would be sacrificed, and there would be way more meat that would be at the end of each day than the priests could use for themselves. So they sold it to the butchers in the marketplace. That meant that that meat had originally begun as a religious sacrifice devoted to a, 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 a god, an idol. So now people, when they wanted to buy meat, they would go to the marketplace, and the meat that they're buying had been sacrificed to an idol. Now, some Christians were of the mindset I'm not an idolater anymore. I, 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 I don't believe in the gods and goddesses. I believe in the one God of the Bible. I believe in Jesus. And so they said, idols are nothing. They, they don't mean anything. So that meat is just meat. Other Christians said, no, those idols were actually fronts for demons. And the meat that was offered to them, a demon can stay attached to. And so you can't eat any meat that's purchased in uh, the marketplace. You might be able to buy meat from a Jewish butcher, but you can't buy it from uh, one of the regular Gentile butchers. So now here you have a, a church. They have a potluck, uh, their weekly agape feast. And they, they bring uh, meat to the table. And, and, and someone says, uh, where'd you get that meat? Well, I got it at the marketplace. I got it at, uh, you know, Demetrius's market. He's a, he's a pagan. You know, all that meat, it was offered at a, at a temple. Um, it's, it's tainted. The person that brought it said, no, it's not. It's carne asada. Go ahead and enjoy some tacos. And now you see there's a, a break in the fellowship because the, the one whose conscience is defiled by eating that meat is going to judge the other one as obviously not ve being very godly that they would eat such tainted meat. The other guy who brought the meat is, is looking at the one who's criticizing him and saying to himself, well, obviously he's not very mature that he can't understand that an idol is not really anything. There is only one God, and he feels perfectly free then to eat meat because his conscience isn't defiled. And here's what Paul says about this controversy that was, in fact, a reality in the early church. He would say, don't get into disputes over, and here's the phrase he uses, doubtful things. We would say gray matters. 
issues that aren't clear-cut in Scripture, you know, prohibitions or exhortations to some command. This is off-limits. Um, this is permissible, or, or not even permissible. Do this. He, that gray area that exists between them, he, he says, don't get into disputes. He says, listen, if, you, if your conscience is not defiled, eat the meat. If, if, it's, if it is defiled, do not eat the meat, because if you, if you can't eat in faith, then it's sin for you. But he goes even further, and he says this. He says, listen, those of you that feel free to eat the meat, you, you may hold that position because you're a bit more mature. You've come to a deeper understanding of the reality of the singleness of God. Whereas that other person, maybe they're not as far along as you. And so he says, because you're more mature, you're a little further along in your walk, you need to defer to the scruples, and that's the word that he uses, of your weaker brother. And by weaker, he's not speaking in that way critically at all. He's just saying he's not as far along as you in the faith. And he says, don't eat meat, because if you do, it may actually embolden your weaker brother to say, well, I, I know that he's stronger, he's mature, so it must be okay. And so what does he do? He grabs a carne asada taco, he eats it, and immediately feels convicted. Not by the Holy Spirit, but by his own sense, he's now done something wrong. And that's not a good place for him to be. He begins to doubt his walk with God. It may backfire, and he may end up becoming even more critical of that brother for causing him to stumble, as Paul says. So Paul says, listen, if you have a freedom in one of these gray matters, then exercise it to yourself and to the Lord. But don't be a, a cause or an occasion for your brother to stumble. Now, I hope that that kind of sets the table now for this issue about Christians celebrating Halloween. Halloween definitely has pagan origins. Origins that have a lot of demonic connotation to them. You, you, can, you can study that all, all on your own. Um, so we, we, there, there is a, a problem for some Christians. They would look at this and they would say, listen, this is a pagan holiday. Here's the thing. As many of the holidays that we celebrate, they, yes, they had their origins in pagan rituals and practices, but they don't mean that to us today. Halloween does not mean for most people a worship of demons. Some it probably does, judging by the costumes and the way that they carry on. But, but it's a day uh, for mostly children uh, to dress up in some costume and to go out and get candy. I, I, when I was a youngster, uh, I, I celebrated Halloween. I had no consciousness of it being a pagan holiday and its origins. And it was honestly, it was just a chance to go out and get some candy. That's all it was. It's become much more a holiday now. Uh, and it's become that because of marketers. It's a great way for them to make money. Bottom line, that's really why ha uh, Halloween has become such a big deal in our country. It's a way for businesses and manufacturers to make money. And so people, uh, and every year it seems like it gets a little bit bigger. So Christians say, hey, listen, I got a lot of friends that celebrate this. That it's, it's at work. I, I'm going to really be an outsider, you know, if I don't participate. And some just say, you know, I just think it's fun. So here's the deal. If your conscience isn't defiled, if you have freedom to do it, because it doesn't have a demonic connection for you, you're free, and it's purely just a fun time, 
then you're free, Paul would say. This is a scruple. I shall not celebrate Halloween. But if you are part of a Christian community where there are a number of people who really frown on Halloween, probably best not to dress up in a uh, costume and go over to their house. <laughs> I really think that this is an application of what Paul is saying there in Romans 14. Exercise your freedom to yourself, but be careful about causing your brother to stumble. If, if you celebrate Halloween and you do so in such a way where others can see you practicing it with, you know, a delight, with abandon, uh, that, that could cause them to stumble. Again, this is, this is something that we have to just bring back to the Lord. We have to pray. If you have any hesitation in your spirit whatsoever, don't do it. Christians, I, I want to encourage you, as you pray about matters, Paul, that we just looked at, praying about, wanting to go into a particular area, but, but, but being shut down. Don't with yourself. When you pray, what is your heart telling you? What direction is the compass of your heart pointing to as you face the options that are before you? Do this or don't do this. When you pray, how is your heart pointing? Now, I realize some would say, well, the heart is wicked. Well, we're, we're promised thirty-one that the new covenant means a new heart. And, and part of spiritual maturity is growing and being able to discern um, what is our flesh and what is that new heart that the Lord has given us. I have to believe that God wants us to be led by his spirit that constantly exhorted to that in scripture. And so that means just trusting that as we pray about something, the Holy Spirit will, in fact, direct our heart in a particular direction. So as you consider an option and, and you have this sense of that's right, go in that direction, trusting by faith that the Holy Spirit is leading you in that direction. If you look at the other option or options, a question mark that stands over it, that probably is, is waving you off of that. And just with equal confidence, you can say, I, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is leading me not to go that particular direction. So uh, I'm just going to have to say all of that helps in your <laughs> question about whether or not you should be celebrating uh, Halloween. All right. Uh, this is a good question. Calvary Arlington asks, so welcome my Calvary brothers there. Uh, Lance, how do you personally answer the question about how Enoch is quoted by Jude? His book is rejected in Scripture. So what this refers to is there was a book of Enoch uh, that was floating around in the first century, uh, and uh, it was being used as a, a source of religious information, spiritual information. But it was not included in the canon of Scripture uh, that the church settled in on in uh, the first four of the ecumenical or uh, what are called, the, yeah, the ecumenical councils. Um, the, the, the councils took a look at what books were uh, to be accepted and what weren't and eventually decided, hey, listen, uh, we're far enough away now. We need to close the canon. Um, these are the books. 
that we uh, uh, recognize as our uh, official New Testament. The the Old Testament canon had already been uh, concluded. So there was a a whole set of uh, writings, manuscripts, that were up for consideration on whether they should be included in the canon, and they didn't pass the test, and the book of Enoch was one of them. But Jude quotes from the book of Enoch in in his passage. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that Enoch was inspired um, all Jude is doing is is referring to something that was in play at his time and then bringing it into his writings, which were inspired. That doesn't mean that the entire book of Enoch was inspired. That one particular line might have been, or listen, it might not, it might not have been, but when Jude quoted it, it became inspired because the Holy Spirit is the one who caused him to think of it and include it in uh, his writings. Let me use another analogy from scripture uh, that may help illustrate this. Paul is speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, and he's, um, he's speaking to them about all these idols that he's seen um, and, and how, obviously, that's a sign that the Athenians must be very religious. Um, but he says, I came upon one uh, that was inscribed as uh, the altar to an unknown god. Now, there's a fascinating backstory to how that altar got there. Um, but Paul just uses that one phrase. Um, so he's, notice that he's, he's using an example from the contemporary time um, uh, to, to to illustrate a, a truth that he goes on then to teach. Hey, listen, this unknown God that, that you've been worshiping, I'm here to tell you who it is. And then he goes on to preach the gospel to them. So you see, here's Paul using an uninspired memorial to give an inspired message. In, in writing to, the, uh, to Titus in the third pastoral epistle, Titus was on the island of Crete. And uh, he knew that the people of Crete could be very difficult. And so in seeking to identify with Titus and to kind of comfort him in his role as a pastor, a difficult role because the people were difficult, he he writes of a poet who had referred to the Cretans as a a little bit lacking in the intellectual area. So, okay, so here we go. Here's Paul quoting a Gentile poet, obviously not inspired, but what he said was an astute observation. And Paul brings that in, and by including it, quoting, if you will, from this guy, he's including it now in inspired scripture. So just because something is quoted doesn't mean its original source was inspired, but it illustrates a truth or becomes the launch pad for a lesson that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So uh, great, great question, by the way. Uh, Appreciate that. Let me take a look here at another. Okay, wow. Uh, Anui asks this question, were we born as enemies to our father God, and were we with him in heaven before being born? So yes, we were born as enemies of God, because we were born in sin. The sin of Adam and Eve was passed to us. Now, I I know that doesn't sound fair, (laughs) 
But the reality is, as I said at the outset, we were all literally physically in Adam and Eve. What we are as human beings today is the result of the sorting out of the literal physical genetic material that was in Adam and Eve. When they fell, we fell with them. So when we are born, we are born as sinners, and as sinners, we are the enemies of God. Uh, as the word says, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, dead doesn't, obviously, we do, we're, we're conscious, uh, we, we still think. What it means is we're separated from God. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses. So we are born in enmity to God. Uh, in 1 John, John says that, uh, excuse me, it's James chapter 4, verse 4. James says, don't be a friend of the world, for um, it, 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 the world is at enmity with God. And so if you're a friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. And we're all born sinners. We're, uh, we are all born as enemies of God. That's why we need to be born again. So, so then the question goes on, uh, were we with God in heaven we were born? And the answer to that is no. There are some cults that do believe that. Uh, Mormons believe that. Uh, <laughs> Mormons do not believe in the God of the Bible. Um, their God uh, was a man at one point on a planet called Kolob. I know this sounds crazy, but this is actually what Mormons believe. Uh, he was a Mormon, good Mormon man on a planet called Kolob. And because he was a good Mormon man after he died, he became the, the god of earth. Um, his wives that were with him on Kolob, when they died, they uh, became part of his celestial harem. And uh, by having celestial sex with his multitude of wives, he produces spirit children who then come and inhabit the bodies, <laughs> a crazy time, of uh, people on earth. Uh, obviously not in scripture. And no, nothing in the word of God, nothing in scripture uh, speaks of souls existing before conception. But Psalm 139, uh, David speaks of how the Lord was with him in the womb, knitting him together, he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and, and David talks about how, uh, really, the whole psalm was about God's presence, and, and that there was nowhere he could go from his presence. And then he thinks back even to the very beginning, and, 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 and where it begins for David, who he is as a person, uh, is in the womb. It's when that sperm and ovum meet, and the DNA from the mother and the father uh, untangle and, and then reconnect now once part of that DNA strand from each parent reunite to make a new being at conception when life begins. That, that is really when uh, we as human beings become persons. Now, legally, the United States has a definition for person which isn't attached to the moment of conception. Um, it was the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 that decided to attach the label person only to a child born. So the moment of birth conferred the legal status of person to the child, and so now protected by the law. And that's how they got away with abortion on demand. Roe v. Wade 
the, the whole point of the case was to decide what that thing in the womb is. And at the time, uh, the court decided to listen only to the voices that said uh, that uh, what it, what's in the womb is doubtful. We don't know. We can only know once it's emerged uh, from the birth canal. And so you know, uh, unborn children were not granted the protection of the law, and so they could be murdered. There was a companion case to Roe v. Wade called Doe v. Bolton um, that decided that, uh, the, that children could be potentially up to the moment of birth. Um, and a lot of people don't know about that uh, companion case to Roe v. Wade, Doe, Doe v. Bolton. And then uh, the court decided that uh, they would leave it to the states uh, to determine uh, what the cutoff time would be in gestation of an unborn child uh, that would be legal to uh, end its life. So uh, we believe that personhood is synonymous with humanhood. And you, be you become all you are at the moment of conception. Everything else is just time, food, and necessary protection. That, that's, that's all that is needed. Everything that you are in essence as a person is present at the moment of conception. Everything else, again, it's just time. You're going to grow. Food, you're, you're going to have nourishment to be able to uh, fuel the biological systems of your growth and protection. There has to be some measure of protection that keeps outside forces from ending your life. So, yes, over time, uh, you, you, once you're born, then you begin to mature and you begin to grow. If, if at some point in that continuum we say, no, you become more human than at one point or another— well, let's run that backwards. So some would say, well, abortion is fine because, okay, it's, it's biologically human, but it isn't, it isn't really a person. It doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have free will. It can't think. It can't really choose until it's, well, what? Not a newborn infant. A newborn infant doesn't have those things. So at what point are we going to then extend the line out that, okay, now you have free will and you have the power to choose and, and you can think uh, autonomously. What age does that happen? Two? Three? Hey, there's actually people advocating the post-birth abortion of infant children up to two and three years old. Uh, a famous professor of morality and ethics, believe it or not, by the name of Peter Singer, I think he's at Cornell University, might be Princeton, He's, he actually advocates that children, young children could be killed because they haven't reached real personhood yet. But hold on. Uh, when you're 40 years old, are you more mature, aware, experienced, maybe more capable of making rational mature, profitable life decisions than you were when you were 16? Of course you are. Does that make you more human? Does that make you more a person? Absolutely not. You see, all of life is a process. Pro humanity, personhood is not related to process. 
it's installed at the moment of conception. Now, I know this has gotten off the subject a little bit, um, but I think it's important because this is a subject now that our entire culture with the Dobbs decision that the Supreme Court recently made, this is something that has just been, um, we, it, we, almost every day we hear about this in the news. As the different states come up with different laws, and now we see different parties that are trying to pass laws that would either um, stop abortion or enshrine it in their state constitutions. So I, I hope that helps. Take a look at another question here. Uh, Janet asked this question. Kindly explain to me why pastors refer to this side of eternity. Is it scriptural? Because what I want to know is, is there eternity? If not, how many sides of eternity are there? Uh, Janet, it's a good question and maybe a little bit difficult to, uh, to answer because it could get very philosophical. When we're dealing with time, it's difficult for us to conceive of eternity because living in a physical universe with our five senses, we are we are bound by our ability to gain knowledge through our five senses. The other form of knowledge that is so important to us is the revelation that comes uh, through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. So when we think of time, it's, it's difficult for us to think of time without thinking of what has been and this moment and what will be. So, so everything for us happens within time. We are time and space creatures. This is why so many people find the spiritual realm difficult to relate to, because it's a step out of time and space. It's into a dimension that we literally have no experience of. Our only interaction with it is when the Holy Spirit speaks to us truths that are from the spiritual realm that govern the physical realm as well. See, I, I know that this is confusing, but I, 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 hope, I hope it's helping to explain the problem that we have is that we tend to relate by analogy. This is like that. Because in our minds, we have this ideal of what the perfect thing is. Um, this is an oft-used illustration of the idea of ideals. Um, when I say chair, everyone can think of what a chair is, because we all know what a chair is. You see, in our mind, we have an idea of what a real chair is. So when we look at something, we go, oh, that's a chair. But then right next to it is another chair that looks nothing like it. It's a different color. It's a different shape. But it's obvious to us that it's a chair. It's something you're supposed to sit on. Isn't that interesting? How is it that we can look at something, two things that are so different, but their tension, their purpose is the same, and to give them the same label? That's because, that's because the world around such a proliferation of things that our minds are able to put them in categories that we put labels over. But here's the problem. When it comes to the spiritual realm, our eyes do not see, our ears do not hear, 
our nose do not smell, our, our, our tongues do not taste, t- uh, taste and our, our hands do not touch the realities and verities of the spiritual realm. They're communicated to us by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, and as we are in prayer, as we are in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Sorry for in the microphone. So when it comes to eternity, we're, we're looking at the spiritual dimension where there is no time. See, when we talk about God being in the past, we're talking about it being from our reference. For God is not really the past. It just is. We talk about God being in the future. He's not in There is no future for God. He, he's, he just is. <laughs> you see, it's confusing. We don't really have language to properly capture the reality of the eternal realm. So today, when people will refer to this side of eternity, we're not really talking about eternity. We're talking about heaven, our eternal living in heaven with the Lord. And and so really, maybe eternity isn't, it isn't a good phrase to say, we might say this side of, of heaven, because we're not in heaven yet. Uh, how many sides to eternity are there? That question, so you see, it's trying to take eternity, which is something other, it's timelessness, and all of a sudden now bring it into time and say, okay, so so is there eternity past? Well, no, just there's just time going to the past. And when we say eternity, we mean there's no beginning of that. And eternity future, uh, that's going in this direction into eternity. And there's no end to that. You see what we're trying to do? We're trying to put limits or sides on on something that doesn't have limit or sides. I'm sorry. I know this is confusing. confusing Again, we don't have the proper words to describe what eternity really is. It's timelessness. And and that's something that we can't relate to because... But here's what's going to happen. We're going to be lifted out of this physical creation and brought into the realm of heaven, of eternity, and and there things will then begin to make make sense to us. I I realize that's probably a very inadequate answer and probably just did more confusing than anything else, but hopefully uh, it'll help. All right. Okay, so so I'm going to take a risk here. I'm not sure what the passage says, but Mason asks this question. Does Matthew 21 verses 18 through 22 teach that we should expect and experience immediate answers to prayer? If not, what does it teach? What can we learn from this illustration? So let me turn to Matthew 21, 8. Or 18 through 21. Is that right? Yep. Matthew 21, 18 through 21 says, uh, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you 
uh, ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And then verse 22, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So does this mean that when we pray, and pray specifically in Jesus' name, does that mean that we uh, should expect and experience answers to our prayer? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. And uh, I, I don't think that this is an example of we should be going around uh, cursing things so that they would wither. Um, there's a lot of symbolism that is going on in this. And I know that this passage has created some confusion uh, in people about, you know, saying to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done. What is, what is exactly going on there? Well, this is where we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. The fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. God had referred, I forget which prophet, but he had referred to Israel as his fig tree. It was one of those places where the prophet was using an illustration um, uh, about God and his relationship to Israel, and God calls Israel his fig tree. Now, that would have been uh, forefront on the minds of those disciples. They knew that passage well, And, and, and fig trees had become in their mind to be kind of associated with their people, with their, their kingdom, their realm, um, their state tree, if you will. So here's Jesus. He's going each day of the last week from Bethany, where he's with uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He's, he's walking over the Mount of Olives with the disciples into the temple courts each day, and then each day when they're done ministering, they go back to Bethany. And as he's walking along the Mount of Olives, he comes by a fig tree that's there. And he, he expects fruit from it because its growth seems to indicate that it will have fruit. But when he goes to get fruit, there's no fruit on it. And so he curses it. And immediately it withers. And the reason why it immediately withered at that point is because Jesus intended this as an illustration. Jesus isn't just ticked. He's not just mad, angry that he didn't get some food. He's using this as an, how petulant would that be? <laughs> he's, he's using this as an illustration for the disciples. You see, each day as he walked into Jerusalem and went into the temple, what he ought to have received was the worship and adoration of the people, welcoming their Messiah. They had been praying for him for generations, and here he is. And what did they do? They rejected him, especially the leaders. That's why he's going to the temple grounds each day. He's being inspected by them. Because, you see, that's what the priests did on the week before Passover. They spent the week inspecting the sheep that were going to be offered for sacrifice. Who has come to the nation leaders to be inspected by them. You'll remember in the Gospels what happens each day. He goes and they grill him with questions. One question right after another. What does he do? He proves he's who he said he was. That he was the Messiah. And they reject him. So the fruit that they ought to have borne 
wasn't there. The temple's there, the big show is going on, but there's no fruit. And so as Jesus is walking by this fig tree and he curses it, it's an illustration to the disciples of what is going to happen to the nation of Israel. They're going to wither, which is exactly what happened just 30 years after his death and resurrection. The Romans came, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was a nightmare. So this is really a prophetic picture of what's going to happen. Because in their minds, remember the fig tree represents Israel. And it was on the Mount of Olives that Jesus had told them about what was coming. He told them that all of this was, was going to be coming. And, and in fact, a few years later. It's interesting also that in that Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you see the fig tree blossom, I, we don't see it in the text, but it's my personal belief that he may very well be sitting on the Mount of Olives and pointing to the fig tree that he had just cursed and now stood withered. When you see the fig tree blossom, know that the will not pass before all these things are fulfilled. And so it's very possible that he's referring, you see, the fig tree Israel had withered, and that's what happened, in fact, for the next 2,000 years until the end times that sees the rebirth of Israel, and the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel will see the culmination of all the prophecies that Jesus referred to there in Matthew chapter 24. Now, as we uh, move to wrap this up, uh, what, what about this where, where Jesus then goes on and he says, hey, if you have, if you have even a little bit of faith, you can, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the midst of the sea. Uh, it seems pretty grandiose. Is Jesus just speaking with hyperbole there? Well, actually, this was a common figure of speech that you would speak in exaggerated terms to illustrate something. Jesus, when he says this mountain be removed and cast into the sea, he's, he's saying nothing will be impossible. Things that seem impossible, if you, if you pray and it's according to God's will, It'll be done because nothing is impossible with God. But I do believe that there is an actual, literal fulfillment of this statement that Jesus makes. Who has the greatest faith of all? Of all human beings who have ever lived, who has the greatest faith? Well, Jesus does. <laughs> and there is going to come a day when he returns. Where does he return to? He returns to the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, the very place that he's standing when he says, also, if you say to this mountain, the mountain he's standing on. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.